Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Erin Glass. The question that she's brought to us is what makes education technology ethical? Erin is a digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego. She's been involved in many innovative projects at the intersection of research, learning, and technology. Together, we've been developing a platform called Ethical EdTech. You can find that at ethicaledtech.info. As a teacher in the classroom, I often worry that what I teach students about technology conflicts with what I expect them to do with technology. I teach media studies, and a lot of what we talk about in the classroom is the troubling surveillance habits and economic models of the tech industry. Yet these same habits, these same models, are also very much at work in the classroom, in the tools that students are using, in the tools that our university expects them to use, from Google searches and Google Docs to uh, the various platforms that the university runs and uses to manage their, uh, their coursework uh, and their relationship with the institution. In ways that can be hard to notice, hard to identify, we typically teach students to be consumers of tech, not necessarily full participants, maybe not makers or repairers so much as buyers and users, not members of communities, but rather individuals having one-to-one direct relationships with big companies far more powerful than they are. When I'm tempted to despair, I'm rescued by the knowledge that people like Erin Glass are out there. Her writing and speaking on technology is at once playful and dead serious, inviting students and educators into a healthier relationship with tech. One of her recent essays, which is called 10 Weird Tricks for Resisting Surveillance Capitalism in and Through the Classroom, uh, and in it she recommends a a mantra from the poet Diane de Prima. This is in all caps. The only war is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. Erin, welcome to Looks Like New. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, why did educational technology first begin to matter to you? That is a great question because um, when I was first sort of in a classroom where we were literally expected to think about this, I sort of I didn't want to think about it at all. Educational technology seemed like a really like baby question. Like I wanted to think about grown-up technology, technology that we used outside of the classroom. Um, and so a lot happened between that moment and me now basically consumed with, with um, thinking about educational technology. Uh, and one, one major part of that change for me was thinking about how the university plays this role, um, whether on purpose or not, in reproducing our technological status quo. 
And the status quo I'm thinking about right now is that right now our, our digital world is really being shaped profoundly by a very small group of people um, with a very particular set of interests. And right now, when we ask students to use technology in a way that where they only think of it as a utility or some sort of neutral tool to just help them get whatever thing they need to get done at, the, at, at that moment, um, we're not asking them to think about technology as political and as a, a set of decisions that has been made by people and that has um, you know, profound social consequence. So I, I'm really interested in thinking about how we can not just train maybe computer scientists or our future developers to think about the ethics of technology, but to, to help everyone, every student, um, think about how they can participate in shaping our technological world. Are there, were there particular moments where this stuck, when this really came to the fore for you? Experiences where you saw students uh, uh, lured into a kind of thinking that troubled you? Yeah. Um, let's see. Where to even begin? Um, one place I could begin is that um, I had the good luck to be at the uh, CUNY Graduate Center. Um, right at around the time they were growing their CUNY Academic Commons, this digital platform that um, was really informed by the ideals of the commons, by um, open source uh, uh, tech practices, uh, free software principles. Um, and, you know, so what we were using the commons for at the CUNY Graduate Center was simply a place to um, to do your learning in more networked, public-facing ways. So if you were going to do student writing, why not do it on the commons and, and share it with some of your fellow students or your teachers? Not Everything wasn't necessarily public, but it could be a little bit more collaborative. Um, sorry, I'm, I feel like I'm going in the wrong direction here. Um, so, okay, so I saw the sort of the, the cultural power of the commons, but then I realized that it was able to give, uh, it was able to, to um, contribute to, to, our, to the culture of learning because it was this community-driven software platform, because it was software that was being developed by people in our community. And at the same time, I was taking classes and reading around in sort of the politics of, of tech and, and started learning about, you know, different technological models of participatory design, free software, open source, et cetera, et cetera. And because I was actually experiencing a platform that was putting those ideas into practice, I felt like I understood I understood them better than um, I would have had I just been reading about them. And it also made me realize that most students actually aren't thinking about how the technology that they use is made and how um, that technology really sort of subtly shapes our knowledge-making communities, our knowledge-making practices, and even in some sense, I think, the ways we imagine um, our knowledge-making mattering or having effects in the world, right? If you're using Microsoft Word and you're writing student papers to submit to an instructor for a grade, you know, you're, you're probably not going to... Um, it's, it's just simply not the same as, as thinking, oh, my, my student, you know, my essay is actually going to be public and could be read by a lot of people, and, and you know, that just changes the sort of um, whole context of what student learning might be. So this is all over the place, but... Um. <laughs> well, it's striking how there's a, there, you know, I, I asked the question of where did you experience the, the profound evil, and you responded yeah. by, by saying, well, actually, I experienced 
something good, oh, you know, experience yeah. a good alternative. And yeah. that, you know, I think we, we th that's a reminder of how uh, there's this expectation that we just maybe need to wait for things to get really bad or right. we just need another Snowden revelation yeah, right, to come right, and bash right, us right, over the head right, even right. further. With, we have to get to the bottom of the barrel, our lowest point, before we kind of see the light, right? Exactly. If, no, and I think that's actually a good. So, um, I mean, can I just kind of pick up from you there? You can go. It, did, it, it, it flashed a little memory for me. So um, I became really, you know, when... <laughs> When I was at the um, the CUNY Graduate Center, and we were told we must no, we weren't told we must use the the CUNY Academic Commons, but some, several classes um, uh, were using it, right, for for facilitating more collaborative forms of student writing. And I had a love hate relationship with it, which is actually some people are surprised about because they think, oh, Aaron's all about open writing. And actually, I was terrified of sharing my writing, like not just with the world, but like the person sitting next to me. I'd not been in higher ed. I, you know, I took a long time off between undergrad and and graduate education, and you know, I showed up, uh, you know, in my graduate program and was like what are these people talking about? And I better not open my mouth because they're going to know that I shouldn't be here, you know? So actually sharing writing was an incredibly intimidating process. And so, but there was something that I really liked about it as someone who before graduate school spent a year out in the woods trying to finish her novel that no one ever read. <laughs> I, I realized that no writing, you know, is actually about sharing things with people. I mean, maybe not all the time. There's a lot of reasons you, you, you might write. but um, So it, it sort of encouraged me to take up this challenge of sharing writing with other people, but I wanted to do it in a more sort of a context that really spoke more to my needs and the needs I saw um, in other students. So I pitched this project to the developers of, the, of our digital commons called Social Paper, which was really this platform that was the idea behind this platform was what if we had you know tools that would really help us build this sustainable centralized student public i know there's a lot of things wrong with this idea but you know where i was thinking at that moment was yeah a lot of folks are having students do forms of networked public writing but we actually don't have a student public because we don't have this sort of hub for us all to come together and share this work and we've seen that you know facebook twitter instagram all of these tools have been able to 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 create huge publics because it's this sort of centralized space where people can um share stuff so i wanted to do a platform sorry just to follow up on your comment about a good thing i i was really interested in in helping create a platform that would would take some of the benefits of of network tools and help them really uh, speak to the needs of students even more by providing a space for students to share writing as they felt comfortable in one place with very select um, groups of people. And then, of course, um, you know, over the years of developing that, I became more interested in the surveillance aspects and reasons why we should actually, you know, um, community-governed tools um, don't just have something positive to give us, but they might also be an alternative from, from these scary um, things that, that you were mentioning earlier. So. Right. Well, I mean, when you think of so many of the tools that, that students are being encouraged to use today, right? I mean, there's, there's a kind of business pitch yeah. at the core of yeah. them. You know, the Chromebook is yeah. just this kind of locked yeah. system where yeah. you're locked, you, you are learning to live within the Google ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was growing up, it was it was Apple that was. Right. You know, uh, uh, there were all these programs where you could help the school buy more of these yeah. computers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, all these enticements right. to 
turn the school into a kind of marketplace. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we didn't really have a moment to even consider, well, if we were to build a network for yeah. ourselves, yeah. what would that look right. like? Right, uh, right, right. And, and you see, you see, I mean, maybe it, it is preparation for a world in which Google and Facebook and <laughs> Apple yeah. control our technological yeah. lives, yeah. but it is so important to, to even consider the question, what would it look like if we built tools yeah. really with the with the educational mission in yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, the many different needs of students. And I, I think, you know, the, the other thing I'm concerned about is that I, I, I got to this a little bit in my comments earlier, but we're really not, we're, we're, right now I think schools are essentially, and again, I'm not trying to blame them, but, but we're inadvertently training students how to be tech consumers. Right, we're 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 teaching them how to push buttons and and use best practices, but we really need to create tech participants or tech citizens, right? Folks that can can um, can see themselves as helping shape technology. That doesn't actually necessarily mean need to mean that they all can code, right? That's mm -hmm. not actually the argument I'm trying to push forth, but that they see our technological systems as as political beings that are in need of democratic. And public oversight, which which I don't think we have right now, and so one of the total like mismatches I see between like what's happening in the news and what's happening in the classroom is is you know you no longer have to be a, a, a paranoid radical to call out Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Right now, right these are the mainstream headlines every day. You know what have they done now? What scary thing has come to light? And yet, you know. Progressive educators, and again, I'm not being critical, I count myself among them, are telling students to use Google Docs because it does actually help support very progressive forms of education where we're, we're teaching um, collaboration and, 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 you know, given the busy lives of educators, who has time to, like, figure out what the, what the um, more ethical version of Google Docs or, or whatever is. So, but... What I don't think we understand, or at least in my point of view, every time we use those tools, we're we're vote we're giving them a vote. We're saying, you know, yes, you should be our future. Like we this, you know, we're actually giving them real value too with our data, right? So um, it just seems that there's a disconnect there that, and and we should really be thinking about, you know, how we can change our our technological practices in higher education to intervene. On the sort of you know growing tyrannical power of, of of big tech. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Erin Glass. She's a digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego, and we're working on one such intervention that she just alluded to, uh, called Ethical EdTech, which you can learn about at ethicaledtech.info. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. KGNU's Summer of Love Fund Drive is coming up in July, but it's not too early to contribute and take part in our drawing for a pair of three-day passes with camping to the Rocky Mountain Folks Festival, taking place August 16th through 18th at Planet Bluegrass in Lyons. That's right, anyone who makes a contribution between now and the end of our Summer of Love Fund Drive will automatically be entered into this exciting drawing to attend the entire Folks Festival this summer. And remember, if you are a current sustainer of local 
Global Radio or Solar member, you are automatically entered into this drawing. So what are you waiting for? Go online to give.kgnu.org or call us at 303-449-4885. Become a member of KGNU and enter yourself in a drawing to win two passes to Folks Fest this summer. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Aaron Glass, a digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, we're talking about what makes education technology ethical. How can uh, uh, ethics inform uh, the kinds of tech that we should be using in that really precious and sacred and, and, and powerful process of, of, uh, of education. Aaron, you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but in the course of your research, you've used some pretty interesting tools. You've done some interesting experiments. Can you tell us a bit about what you're up to and you know, how you've tried to incorporate some of these questions about ethical technology into your own, into your own work? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I can frame it all in terms of this kooky um, dream project I have. I've never been able to quite do, but I really want to do, and so I keep making many projects that sort of, um, you know, strive to embody parts of it. Um, so the the idea, as I was working on this tool called Social Paper, really, which was supposed to be this platform for socializing student writing and creating a student public, what be, actually became more interesting to me about that project was the idea that actually that that students could actually govern their own ed tech platform and that they could shape it. And, and I was thinking that there'd be two major components of that project. One would be, yes, they'd be in charge of all the technical development and would really start to think, have this really praxis-oriented perspective on seeing how the different technical decisions that they made sort of fed back and informed different social practices. And then vice versa, how could social practices go back and, and sort of change or make use of the different technical features? Fine, great. But then the second one is governance. How you know Students, I don't think, I, I have rarely seen um, projects in schools where students are actually in charge of, of the technologies that they use and thinking about the policies and the privacy practices and all these things that right now are just imposed on students and barely without their awareness. I mean, sure, they sign you know terms of services, but um, it really doesn't, I think there's been a lot of work done uh, on the fact that they aren't really quite aware of what they're signing away. So I thought it'd be a really um, cool idea if we had a, some sort of ed tech platform where students were actually running it and some people think, oh, that's totally insane. But I think we have an older analog for that, right, which is the student newspaper. Yeah. And the student newspaper is this space where, we're, where they're creating media that, that's for students and by students and it serves all these different really important purposes. One, it gives um, you know, give students news, this very important media, you know, content from a student perspective. But two, it's also training our future journalists, right? It's, it's, they're, they're not just learning about journalism through reading and books. They're, they're learning about all the complexities and, and contradictions and problems and skills that, that are necessary to be, you know, a, a, a journalist later on. So I was really hoping that you know, one day I could create this EdTech platform and have students in charge and then deal with all these really complicated questions, which is, well, wow, we have this platform that's generating all this student data. Hmm. What do we do with it? You know, and they never get to ask that question because Google just takes it and does, who knows what they do with it. They, you know, it's actually interesting to close read their FERPA um, 
agreement, and we can go into that later if you'd and like. FERPA has to do with the management of student data. Yes, so yes, yes. It's the, uh, it's the law governing that. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about um, Google and FERPA, even though they're abiding by it. But anyway, we can table that for a moment. Um, so one, one, this to me becomes a really interesting project, and I'm really interested in critical pedagogy and sort of student-centered education where it's not just the educator telling the students, you know, what's right or wrong, what they need to learn, what not. I think of it like, you know, Iris Shore, I think, once said, you know, the teacher needs to like commit teacher suicide or something and become, you know, one with the students and, and work together to deal with all these messy programs that honestly the adults in the room haven't figured out mm. either, right? And so if if students could all of a sudden think about, well, okay, we, we have our entire, you know, campuses data, what do we do with it? I mean, we could sell it, I guess, you know, could we sell it and then finally have funding for, you know, could, would that be a way of... Um, Paying off student paying loans. Paying off student <laughs> loans, right? You know, like, and um, I'm not necessarily advocating for that direction. Or would they say, no, we want this to, you know, not generate any, you know, monetary value because things will just go awry. But maybe um, we think that this data has value for self-study, for understanding ourselves as students, but not as student consumers or not as future consumers or future workers, right, which is the way data is often being leveraged today. Um, but as I don't know, I mean, wouldn't it be interesting? If, like one thing that I keep thinking about is, um, so Turnitin, you know Turnitin, right? It's the... Um, it's the educational technology platform that um, supposedly ho holds 300 million student papers, right? And, and, and you know, for the listening audience, um, basically uh, students submit their, their papers to turn it in to show teachers that they haven't plagiarized, correct? Right? I actually have never used it. Um, so they hold um, 300 million student papers. And uh, can you imagine the sort of data analysis that you could do on that data set? I mean, not that I'd want to, but I would. I am curious. Like, well, what is gender representation like in student papers? Mm -hmm. What is, um, you know, the representation of different races in these papers? Like, how are different ideas circulating? What are students thinking about? Um, and of course, um, as as many people know, uh, Turnitin was just sold to um, Advanced Publications for 1.75 billion dollars, which I think is a testament to how valuable student data is beyond just thinking about how do we how do we make sure students are learning better. You know, it's it's no this data ha is um, is is valuable for media corporations to think about. You know, the 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 consumers that they're you know trying to sell products to. Anyway, again, I'm all over the map here, but you know, I, I, I would love for students to start, start thinking about the ethical and intellectual and, and social uh, possibilities and implications of the data that they're generating. They don't have an opportunity to do that with the tools that we're currently using. And I think you're pointing to something, right, in that the, the, the adults in the room, us, yeah. are struggling with this yeah. stuff or, yeah. or yeah. trying to avoid struggling yeah. with yeah. it ourselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard enough for, you know, for, for the educators. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that's one of the reasons we're working on this platform to kind of make it easier for educators yeah. to find these tools uh, at this, this site, ethicaledtech.info. Um, and, you, you know, you're reminding me of an experience I had when my, my next door neighbor growing up, went, he was a year older than me, went to college a year earlier. He was super smart. He went to Dartmouth. And he was, a, he was actually a computer science major. And, and um, at that time, that was the very end of this, um, this project called Blitzmail, which was a very early email system. Yeah. 
Um, and it was, you know, it was before email was totally ubiquitous, but Dartmouth was kind of an early adopter because they had a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, they had been investing in computer yeah. research for a long time. And it was so cool when I got there because this was a whole community that was using email in a very distinctive way. Yeah. Um, there were terminals all over the, uh -huh. the campus uh -huh. and it was very much a part of the social life. Uh -huh. And it was, there was a whole kind of, you know, what now would feel like a social media culture, kind yeah. of a distinct, yeah. It, yeah. it's as if a new Snapchat had just come out and, yeah. and a distinct culture yeah. had emerged around it. Yeah. And then he, uh, you know, as a programmer had built a, a his own client for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it became part of his education. Right. That idea that you would approach technology on a campus as part of the educational yeah. process yeah. and part of the culture of the place rather right. than as this, um, you know, this thing you just plug in and you, you take whatever the, the official mm -hmm. option. And now Blitzmail has been replaced by a Microsoft product. Right, right. Wow, that is fascinating. I mean, you're, you're sort of pointing to the fact that there were all these like other possible features that, you know, technological features for universities that just didn't quite make it for one reason or another. And it reminded me of some of the research I ended up doing um, on, on uh, writing instruction in the 1980s. I don't know if you're aware of any of this, but turns out, right, that, you know, in 2008, you know, instructors were saying, oh, wow, we're doing networked education through Twitter and, and WordPress, and isn't it amazing and innovative? Well, actually, in the like 1981, you know, writing instructors were hand-wiring computer, you know, labs and doing networked writing pedagogy and with fascinating results and critiquing, you know, the, the emerging um, word processor that was going to basically dominate um, writing practices in higher education beyond, like by 1990, right? But they were exploring all these alternatives. They were um, using rhetorical theories to build their own kind of funky sort of word processing systems. And to me, it just, it, it, when I started reading about this and, and learning about all these practices, it was it was just astonishing that all these different possibilities had been explored, but they just didn't get support and they didn't get funding. And then they were sort of pushed aside when these, you know, more serious adult, you know, corporate options started um, becoming officially adopted mm -hmm. in, in higher ed. So, um, and one, one quote that always rings in my head is, is Steve Jobs, right, said in an interview that one of the things that built Apple II computers was universities buying Apple II computers. And so I think, you know, right now, you know, one of the things that's keeping Google alive is universities using Google. So I don't know, I, I, which, you know, maybe that's fine, but when you see what communities can do when they are in charge of their tech, um, it, I think it just starts pointing to, to more creative and exciting and, and equitable possibilities that, that we're not seeing right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, 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 there are so many kind of different directions that things yeah. could have gone. And, 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 and universities are such a source of, you know, they're, they're such a, a powerful chunk of the economy, universities yeah. and, yeah. and uh, other kinds of schools. Yeah. Um, and, and there's such a need to do that work internally but yeah. uh, uh, we see much more often that work being done on the outside and it's part of a bigger program where um, you know the same 
uh, people who are selling these technologies, you know, the Bill Gates, for yeah, instance, yeah. You know, Microsoft is yeah. a major provider yeah. of education technology. Yeah. His foundation is also one yeah. of the major drivers yeah. of yeah. education yeah. reform. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> It is. It is. I, it, it also not to be controversial, but um, you know, it reminds me of this concept that Paulo Freire, the the critical educator, talked about, which is false generosity. And it's right the generosity that that the oppressors give that's mm. really based on on the things they've already stolen from from the people that they're oppressing in order to um, to to cultivate this sort of dependent relationship of of the oppressed on the oppressor and so not to call Bill Gates or his foundation the oppressors but right you know you, you, it does give you some space to sort of question the the forms of charity um, that, that higher education gets and what what invisible costs are, are part of receiving that charity does mm-hmm. that make sense I don't know <laughs> well that no it, it, it is a cost it yeah. is a cost yeah. um, and, but it also uh, offers something at a lower at a lower at an yeah. apparent lower yeah. cost, yeah. right? right and, apparent, and the cost yeah. is uh, the loss of right. you know the effort that we right. might put in, right? Um, right. You know, and you were talking too about the the urge to uh, the push for everybody to code, you yeah. know, learn how to yeah. code, you know, yeah. um, and uh, and and I think it's it's right to question that. Yeah. I mean, what what do you think are the essential skills? Yeah. Uh, that you know the the drive to code is kind of like can be translated as learn how to get a particular kind of job at a tech company. Right, but exactly. What do you think are the skills that a student should have for Ooh. for doing tech better? Oh, you're putting me on the hot seat. <laughs> uh, um, that is such a great question. And you know what? I, I just first want to say that's an open, ongoing question for me, and one that I think we we, we should all be working on together. But I know that's also a non-answer. So. Um, I mean, I think it's incredibly important that people have exposure to the command line, right? Or that also that people learn that code is like, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about like, oh, I don't know how to code. And it, it seems like they think that maybe there's just like one code, like one coding link, you know? Yeah. And it's like, what does it even mean to teach students to code? There's so many different coding languages, you know? And and I think I think students should have an understanding of some of the history of, of the ways these different languages and technologies developed. I think they should have exposure to the command line. Um, but I just also think there should be more participatory, cooperative groups that help manage technology. And not everyone um, in those groups needs to be able to, like, you know, hack into the, you know, the source code, right, or, or understand it all. I mean... I think another misconception that I see in folks that aren't very um, experienced in, in, in computing literacy is that they think that there's, you know, there's this idea of these like lone hackers or these hacking geniuses that go and like build things, you know, on their own. And you see that idea reproduced even in, in sort of um, uh, critical or, or, or satirical um, images of tech today, right? Like Silicon Valley or Mr. Robot, right? Even though they're, they have a sort of critique of, of Silicon Valley, they're still reproducing this idea of, of like a lone hacker. Anyway, we all know that, you know, that, that coding takes any significant program, takes many, many, many people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and not all of those people will be actually coding. So I think... Um, giving folks experience in that 
in software projects or, or, or software governance is to me much more important than you know than whether they can create a program on their own. Yeah. Well, yeah. One, once more, you've unmasked <laughs> the shallowness of my question. And, you know, I, I think that's so right. You know, that the the um, it's not just about a particular list of skills. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is so often how yeah. it's presented. Yeah. It, the challenge is actually a different social relationship yes. to yes. to these technologies. Yes. A different sense of, you know, how do you manage it? What if there were a you know a group that yeah. you know of students yeah. who's, who were yeah. running the learning yeah. management system? Yeah. yeah, having students at the beginning of a course ask you know what tools are appropriate to right. the task that right. is at hand. Right. You know, what are the what are the the uh, costs and uh, opportunities of each yeah. of each tool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, the social relations. It is it is so important, and um, you know, I I I've um, obviously been really informed by the the software freedoms, right? The freedom to inspect the code, modify the code, share share the code. And I know there's a lot of you know problems with the free. I don't the controversy debate around the, the free software community and its accessibility to folks. So I've you know obviously been really informed by the um, the organizing principles of the free software movement, right? The the freedom to modify code, inspect code, share code, etc. And um, but one thing that that comes out when you you think about how do those freedoms mean anything, right? If I simply had that freedom. Um, over my operating system, it actually wouldn't really matter because I, I wouldn't be able to make any sense out of out of my source code, or probably be able to modify my source code in any meaningful way. But when you think about, yeah, what what, what social conditions or social configurations um, would actually make those those freedoms matter? Um, then I think you're 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 looking towards a more um, promising direction for for technology. So what what sorts of you know, community organizations could, you know, particularly in education, like help students um, and, and the educator community um, make use of those freedoms. Sorry, I'm a little. <laughs> no, it, it's uh, it, it the the forms of technology connect with economic models. Yeah. They connect yeah. with uh, forms of accountability. You know, when we're relying on, for instance, the venture capital ecosystem, uh, uh, where where companies are are driven pushed to disrupt to right. to utterly transform and clear space in right. whole industries you know what is you know is that the kind of force that is really accountable to right. the educational process right. or is the right. educational process kind of right. uh, a tool for right. its sense right right and do we want these tools to disrupt and and impose on the educational processes rather rather than the other mm-hmm. way around yeah one model i'm thinking about is the modern language associations humanities commons which is a few years old and and runs off of um, Commons in a Box open source software that again was developed by the CUNY Graduate Center development team, and it it's sort of a an alternative to um, Academia.edu, which I'm sure folks are hopefully folks are familiar with. It's a it's kind of like a Facebook for for scholars. For, yeah, yeah, for a Facebook for scholars, and um, you know, so they're both trying to do similar things. One's doing it for a profit and has sort of all those you know different uh, mechanisms to help it grow, academia.edu, right? And then the Modern Language Association is doing it, you know, 
through resources given by that professional organization and but there are these these major differences like i don't know if academia edu spams you but you know they'll say that your name is mentioned and things but you have to pay to see it and you know there's all these different devices and i think people are actually worried like if this becomes you know one of the foundational tools of scholarly communication Academia.edu is going to have profound influence on what sorts of knowledge gets circulated and discovered and, and so forth, where um, the MLA Humanities Commons is, is trying to put forth a completely different model where you know, everything is open and, and, and the scholars themselves hopefully in, in conversation with the, 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 the professional organization get to help grow and shape the tool according to their needs. But you know, I think the, the, the problem is that academia.edu has a lot more resources right now, so it's going to make a shinier, easier, um, easier to use tool. So, you know, and obviously has a much larger um, user base than, than the MLA Humanities Commons. So I'm hopeful that, you know, we can s sort of spark the political will and, and get more folks to start using these alternatives and, and, and show the organizations that are, that are developing them that they do matter and they're valuable and should, be, should continue to grow. And I think sometimes part of the challenge is to identify the things that the the industry isn't doing on its yeah. own. And that can be hard because yeah. we're things are changing so fast yeah. and people are just they feel like they're just catching up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And oh we have to learn another yeah. technology. Yes. We have to you know, oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted yes. by all this. Um, but it's a it's it's a um, it's a challenge to say you know, to recognize that they're not doing everything. Yeah. There, yeah. There, there, there's so much that they're missing, uh, uh -huh. so much that they're not recognizing. Uh -huh. And uh, how can we build in those spaces and right. create? I, you know, an example yeah. comes to mind is, is all these companies are collecting data about the web, right? right? But nobody just wants to give it away. Right. Um, Archive.org, you know, yeah. is an example of a nonprofit that uh, was built to give that away, yeah. you know, and yeah. to, to turn it into a commons. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, a slow kind of, you know, a nonprofit that's never going to be funded as well right. as a, right. you know, huge startup right. um, with a similar claim on the web, you right. know, is, is ever going to get. But um, they're, they're able to hold a space that, you know, the other kinds of tech can't do. So right. that there's, to me, it's not just the question of how do you, Build an alternative that's a carbon copy, but right. worse funded and right. you know right. run by academics. Right. But how do you do the thing that you know the academia.edu's like just right. wouldn't even do because there isn't enough, enough right. money in it. Right, um, right, that and, is such a good question. And to do it differently. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Aaron Glass, a digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego. Stick stick with us, and we'll be right back. Mark your calendars. KGNU's 31st Charles Sautel Memorial Mountain Jam at the Gold Hill Inn is coming Sunday, July 21st. This popular, family-friendly event is a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon listening to great music in the mountains while enjoying some of the best home-cooked Texas barbecue around and beverages provided by Avery Brewing. This year's Mountain Jam will feature three great bands, Che, Appalachia, The Lonesome Days, and Avonheart. All three will wow you with their bluegrass and Americana stylings for an afternoon that will be a special treat for you, your family, and friends. Get your tickets now online at kgnu.org or by calling 
303-449-4885 and see you on July 21st. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. I'm Nathan Schneider. I teach media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. And this month I'm speaking with Erin Glass. She's a digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego. And together we've been developing a platform called Ethical EdTech at ethicaledtech.info. And we're talking today about, about that, about what makes education technology ethical. Now, Aaron, your, uh, uh, your degree is in English, but you're a librarian now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, what does that mean to you? I mean, to me, it seems so weird that, the, that in an information age, libraries, it would seem, should be at the center of, of how we do and talk about information. Yet, right. yet libraries, that core infrastructure of information, they seem to be kind of at the periphery. Right. Why do you think that is? That's a that's a great question. Well, first I have to say there are so many um, librarians across the country and, and maybe even beyond um, that are doing just awesome advocacy work around sort of information access and privacy and, and sort of all the ethical questions that we're concerned about with technology. So that is really wonderful, whether they're being given, um, a, you know, whether they're advocacy is being amplified as much as we need to is, is another question. Um, so, so you're, you're, you're asking why are we overlooking them right now? I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Are we overlooking it? I mean, some people are really thinking about how, you know, a lot of librarians are actually thinking about the role that libraries can play in, in our information age. Um, at the same time, you know, just like the nonprofits we were talking about, they are incredibly strapped for resources, and um, they're doing huge jobs. I mean, right now I'm speaking, you know, specifically about academic libraries um, because that's that's where I am. Um, but I know from colleagues in public libraries, you know, their their issues are even more severe. They uh, really are expected to fulfill all these different sorts of social um, services, and and don't have the funding, the support, um, you know, the resources that they really need to to do that kind of work. So I think it's just a complicated problem. On one hand, um, libraries and their mission to to create access, you know, information access for citizens and to help support democracy in that way and to um, really be this open resource for everyone. Uh, which is such a wonderful uh, mission and something that they they do do very well uh, in many ways competes with the fact that they don't necessarily have the support to do that so then when we bring in all the challenges of the information age and Mm -hmm. and these these technical questions and privacy questions and uh, you know I think I think especially folks working within libraries just might say we we don't have what it takes right now you know but um as someone who has loved libraries forever, um, you know, I think that's really where I got my own, where my own sort of obsession with reading um, grew out of from the libraries in my public elementary school to the library that was two blocks away from my public elementary school where I'd go to on my way home. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like their, their, their potential has not yet been, their potential for the information age has not yet been fully um, explored, but we really need to support our libraries better in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, the, you can imagine like what it would look like if the energy that had been put into creating a private information commons had gone into creating a, a more public one. Yeah. You know, with yeah. libraries as yes. the 21st century you know, anchor that they had been for information in previous generations. Absolutely. I remember I, I sort of, I think it was on Twitter, connected with one librarian who, I, I don't remember where um, she was, but she said, yeah, in like the early aughts, we actually did provide a social network for our um, patrons hmm. and that it was really popular for a year or two. And then I, I'm not sure if it was Facebook or, or, or what, you know, that, that then, you know, once some other platform um, became available that everyone used, just, you know, usage of their of their network dropped off significantly. And, um, you know, she said at the time, it, it just seemed like the reasonable thing to do. All of a sudden, this new fancy, you know, thing arrives. And, of course, everyone's going to use it. But, you know, now looking back, it's like, oh, what, what, what did we miss out on by not, you know, sticking with that and growing growing that network as opposed to jumping on a, on a ship with completely different values and interests? In yeah, pe people always, you know, people in tech right now have been talking a lot about, inclu including, for instance, people like Tim Berners-Lee, the mm -hmm. inventor of the World Wide yeah. Web, has been um, publicly really wrestling with the centralization of uh, the thing he built, you yeah. know, and and yeah. in in a book he wrote um, some years ago, he, you know, he said the web will never get centralized because the technology is just so open, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. And then now he looks at what has happened and 70% of traffic goes through Facebook and right, Google right, and he's right. just um, kind of appalled at yeah. how yeah. the business models yeah. have enabled even this centralized technology to operate that way and and you know there's this there's this piece of how these technologies work of you know called federation yeah. the idea that you could have multiple poles that are interconnecting multiple hubs on yeah. the network yeah. uh, that could work like a, a social network yeah. or search engines or yeah. so forth, but the information and the power are distributed. And, you know, so imagine, for instance, you know, uh, uh, getting your email account from yeah. your library, yeah. Yeah. You know, your local library, or, or uh, uh, accessing a global social network right. through, right. you know, your library right. servers. And right. they, you know, they enable you not to have to be a techie. Right. Uh, right. To still have some community control, right, right, right. And I think that's no, and and you you know it 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 is a reminder that a lot of the early uh, social networks, like yeah. BBSs, they were at a time where because they were running on phone lines, yeah. they they were necessarily local. You right. know, it was so much cheaper to call into right. a local BBS, right, right. And so there was a kind of overlap between. Uh, even though you were communicating on this international network uh, for the um, for your you know for, for some of that social interaction, you know it made sense to to have a local relationship as well. Right. To exactly. have a local hub. Exactly. Yeah, and I wonder. I mean, I, I wasn't on those BBS systems, unfortunately, because I was just a little tot or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I wonder if there was just a. a or I gather from you know people talking about that there was a greater sense of community around that, right? It wasn't again like this one to one, one individual to corporation relationship that you mentioned earlier. It was it was more like, yeah, our, we have a community sort of network, and that what is what enables us to um, branch out and talk to other mm -hmm. you know networks. So, 
and and with the ethical ed tech yeah. um, site, you know, it's a wiki uh, where we're trying to collect all these tools yeah. that people might yeah. use yeah. someday. You know, with this vision that uh, maybe eventually people will want to have more control right. over the technology, and right. here are some tools that you could consider right. using. Right. Right. Know, and I, I found it really helpful. You know, there are some things I know that that I, I've been putting in yeah. things that you know that yeah. you've been putting yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, and then we've started to build a community around the around the country, even outside the country, where people yeah. are contributing. You know, their favorite tools. Are there any things that you've put on there that you uh, uh, that you've really uh, enjoyed using that you uh, can can share with us? Um, yeah, let's see. Um, good, good question. I mean, there's. I think there's a, a lot of exciting tools coming out of the digital humanities space um, because that's one space where humanities scholars are are really taking seriously the question of how do our tools shape our intellectual practices and um, how can we create tools to better address um, some of uh, of the disciplinary needs of, of humanities researchers and scholars. So. Um, there's uh, Scalar is one publishing platform that's been around, I think, now for a, a decade, coming out of um, the University of Southern California with um, Tara McPherson at the head, and, and a, a lot of just talented people are part of um, the Scalar platform. And that one allows you to tell sort of media-rich, non-linear, scholarly stories. And it's really um, dedicated to thinking about what does scholarship look like now that we have all these digital possibilities. So that's one great tool. Um, another tool that I, I think is really exciting is Omeka um, because that is a, a tool that, that said, you know what, lots of people need to create um, digital archives, right? There's a lot of need for that and we shouldn't, you know, only, you know, um, rely on the already overworked uh, librarians to create our digital archives. Sometimes we want to create community archives or or you know small scale archives, so let's re release some open source software that will allow anyone to do that, um, you know, but in a in sort of proper way. I mean, of course, anyone can create a WordPress website, but this you know allows you to do that, uh, input metadata for all the objects and create collections, and um, so I think tools like that are are really exciting. Um, another sort of suite of services that I think is, is cool and is not nonprofit, it is a business, but um, it's one that really has sort of ethics in mind with the products that they provide is um, uh, the reclaimed hosting and the, the domain service that they offer. And they're really trying to push forth this um, digital literacy um, approach to ed tech where students own their own doma domains that they use to publish their digital work um, as students. And then when they graduate, they can take that domain with them. So, you know, you could not really envision that, that, that same sort of ethos while using Blackboard, for example, or Canvas, right? I mean, can you really port your, your work from Blackboard to your own domain after you graduate? I mean, I, I don't think so. I guess I haven't looked at that recently. But um, so those are some tools that I think are, are exciting. Yeah. In addition, of course, to Commons in a Box, a, a platform that, that I've already mentioned. And, Kind of grown up around so. Well, that yeah. that that example of uh, of reclaim hosting yeah. of the domain is interesting because what one dilemma I see yeah. happening a lot is around publicness, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You know how what are we expecting yeah. our students to uh, expose yes. about themselves yes. and 
you know, for instance, I have colleagues who, you know, who encourage students to blog yeah. uh, through the class, yeah. but, um, you know, which on the one hand yeah. is a good skill to yeah. learn and, yeah. and maybe being public means that they might get broader feedback yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you're uh, using the power of, of the classroom to expect them to uh, put yeah. something on the web yeah. uh, publicly right. that you know could have right. consequences that right. they don't anticipate. Absolutely, absolutely, and especially, I mean, there's so many reasons that a student might have that you know, or, or, or just life experiences or identities that make them extra vulnerable that you know the educator may not be aware of and doesn't necessarily need to know, right? It's I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I guess I would never force a student to. Um, to do public writing under their name, while at the same time, I think it's a really important skill and something we should expose students to. It's not something we should force, especially. I mean, the the web is so unpredictable. You know, you you, you never know how it's gonna bite you, <laughs> so, yeah. right? And it might be years later. So, um, so I think it is important to to cultivate forms of digital engagement with students that that protects them you know where, where your time of learning is such a vulnerable time anyway right so we should be really cautious about what we expect students to do in an open way yeah again it com comes down to rethinking how the community yeah. works i mean i think that's a question that you want to invite students into yeah. what yeah. is appropriate yeah you know what yeah what is the yeah you know what what should we be asking of yeah. you what kind of skills do you want to develop? Yeah. What kind of exposure yeah. do you want to have? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what's your approach in, in your classroom, if I can ask? Yeah, I, <laughs> I generally err on the side yeah. of caution. Yeah. I, I yeah. tend to think of the classroom as a place that should, where students should yeah. be allowed to yeah. fail and, yeah. or, or right. try something that right. is new for them. Right. Um, you know, one policy that I... I have in my syllabus is that things said in the classroom should stay in the oh, classroom. That's nice. You yeah. know that that even things said orally. Yeah. You know we want to give e yeah. each other the space. Yeah. You can ask permission. Yeah. Can yeah. I tell somebody that you said right. that? Right. Right. But without permission, you really ask that you don't share. Right. Um, right. And that that's something that I think I wouldn't have thought of. Right. Without the world of social media. Right. You know it's yeah. a, it's a way in which yeah. I think I brought in some of the anxieties yeah. we've learned from the world of social right. media where right. we see how our words spread. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas in, in the world before that, maybe we, our words spread, but we didn't, we didn't visualize how many retweets, how right. many, you know, iterations of the telephone game uh, uh, happened to, to things that we yeah, you know, said in say. class that we weren't even sure we believed. Right. And the classroom already is this like, unknown rhetorical space, right, that you spend a whole, that, that even a whole academic term isn't enough time to fully get comfortable with, right? I mean, I really think that we're our best intellectual selves when we um, feel, when we develop trusting relationships with other people, right, and we kind of feel like we can work together. So that takes, that takes three months at least to even begin to start in a classroom. How, but you can, I mean, you to then take the words spoken in that space and put them outside of the classroom just seems completely unfair and 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 um, 
opens up possibilities for those words being interpreted in totally different ways, right? Yeah. Well, Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was great. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Erin Glass. Uh, she's the digital scholarship librarian at the University of California, San Diego. We've been talking about what makes education technology ethical. You can find out more uh, at the platform that we've been building together, uh, along with a community of, of other contributors at ethicaledtech.info. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked what you've heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month. Thank you so much for being with us.